The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. This morning, we want to go back to the book of Job. Now, as you turn to the eighth chapter, I realize that sometimes it may seem cumulative what we're covering in the book of Job, and it is, but it builds upon itself, and it builds uh, sort of ultimately it's going to build to a crescendo when the Lord finally comes upon the scene. We probably will move a little faster after this message on Bildad and the first message on Zophar, but I want to cover what these miserable comforters of Job are telling him. And I want us to see just how miserable Job has become. And, and also we need to understand how that all of these characters in this book of Job, except God, of course, are off base just a little bit on their theology. You know, actually, that's probably the wrong way to put it. Their theology is mostly correct, but the way they apply it is, is just a little bit off. Their understanding of what's going on is limited. Their, their conclusions that they leap to are conclusions they shouldn't get to. And so, so I want you to bear with us as we go through this book because, again, this book is the oldest book in the Bible. It was written before the book of Genesis was written. And it doesn't take away from the inspiration of the book of Genesis. I don't mean it that way, but I just want you to understand the first time a man sat down to write the words of God in an inspired way is when someone wrote the book of Job. I'm not sure exactly who, but someone wrote the book of Job. And this is the first scripture that we can go to to start understanding from a written standpoint the nature of God. And if we misunderstand the book of Job, we will misunderstand the nature of God and the cause and the nature of our sufferings in this life. So the book of Job, here we're in the ninth uh, sermon on the book of Job, beginning here in the eighth chapter. Now remember that Job's friends are not the example of how we should think, but they're the example of how we should not think. They had drawn up their own idea of God. And I'm, I'm reminded of a story I heard recently about a little boy who was busy drawing. He was drawing lines on a page, and it was some grand thing he was drawing. And his father comes in the room and said, Son, what are you drawing? He said, I'm drawing God. He just kept drawing. He said, Well, son, don't you know that uh, nobody knows what God looks like? He said, they will when I get through drawing him. <laughs> now, sometimes we draw our own picture of God and think that that's what God looks like. But like that little boy, we might be just a little uh, overstating the matter. <laughs> we might be a little too prideful about our grasp of God. Listen, I hope today at age 54, I have a much better understanding of who God is and what his nature contains than I did when I was 14. But even if I live to be 444, I will never be able to comprehend God. He is so far above me that his weakness is greater than men. His weakness is stronger than men, and God doesn't have any weakness. But the point that Paul was making over there is that even if God had a weakness, it would be stronger than anything man could come up with. His 
folly. His foolishness is wiser than men. And God has no foolishness. There's no folly in him. But if there were, it'd still be wiser than anything you and I could come up with, you see. God is so much greater. But Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar and even Job thought they had a handle on who God was. You remember Eliphaz appealed to his own experience. He came in and crushed the spirit of Job because he was telling Job, Job, in my life, and obviously, obviously Eliphaz was older than Job. In fact, I believe all three of these men were older. Elihu, we're going to see, appears to be younger. But they were all saying, look, I'm older and I'm wiser and, 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 and I have seen in my own life how God is. And it's the idea, it's the legalistic idea of cause and effect type of thinking. You know, in other words, you come into someone's situation and you try to evaluate it for them. So your child's gone astray, you must have been a bad parent. You know, uh, uh, you've got cancer, you must have been living bad. You know, you, you die, you know, death occurs. Well, there must be some sin in your life that causes it. They're even going to accuse Job of being the cause of his children's uh, deaths. So Eliphaz comes into this idea, and, and, and they all have this idea of some kind of Christian karma. You know, karma is the idea that what goes around comes around. For every action, there's an equal but opposite reaction, so to speak. That's, that's, listen, that's the laws of gravity. That's not the nature of God. <laughs> now, now, don't get me wrong. Let's, let's not go too far down that path and, and forget that from an eternal standpoint, God is indeed just. And sin absolutely must be paid for. But remember that not only is God the great judge of all, he's the one who loves his people with an everlasting love. And we're going to see in this, in this book of Job that the gospel message is being preached. The gospel message is being preached. In fact, we're going to see it a little bit today. And this idea of Christian karma is not correct thinking. So Bildad comes on the scene next. And he's been hearing all that Eliphaz has said. Now, Bildad, we've already given an overview of him. He appeals to historical experience, the wisdom of the ancients in promoting this idea of cause and effect. So let's look at Bildad's arguments beginning in chapter 8. We first, he first starts talking about the nature of God. Verse 1, Then answered Bildad the Shuhite and said, How long wilt thou speak these things? And how long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? Now let me just stop here and say, what he's saying to Job is, Job, you're a blowhard. <laughs> you're just talking to hear your head roar, as my mama used to say. You're just, it's just like the wind. Now where's the comfort in that? You remember, Job is suffering greater than any man has ever suffered in their experience in that day. And he is, he is sobbing down in the dung heap, scraping himself with pot shards and grieving the loss not only of his stuff, but of his family and ultimately of his health. What comfort is there in this? These, these men, Bildad particularly, is more concerned with, with, with the justice of God than with the needs of his friends. And as I said, justice, we're going to see, it's true. That's true theology, but it's a wrong application. It's a wrong application. Let's keep reading just for a few more verses. Verse 3, doth God pervert judgment? Or doth the Almighty pervert justice? That's a rhetorical question, and the answer is obviously no. Again, I say, that is true theology. 
But the problem is he's applying it in the wrong way. In Psalm 33 and verse 5, we read, He loveth righteousness and judgment. It is true that God is a just God. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4 tells us He is the rock. His work is perfect for all His ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is He. Abraham asks the question in another rhetorical sense. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? God is indeed a just God. But Bildad, you've forgotten about something else. Over in 1 John, you can turn there or not. I'm just going to quote it. 1 John chapter 4 and verses 8 and 16 We read about God being, in fact, we're told God is love. Now, in 1 John 1 and verse 5, we're told God is light. That means He's on the right side of justice. He's always, God is light. He's not, he's, He's no, there is no darkness in Him at all. That means there's no imperfection. There's no unjust way about Him. There's no unrighteousness with Him. But yet, on the other hand, He is love. He is light. And he is love. And how do you reconcile these two potentially conflicting attributes of God? Well, the answer is clear to us in 2021. Psalm 85 and verse 10 said, Mercy and truth hath met together. Righteousness and peace hath kissed each other. Where did they do that? On the cross of Calvary. They came together. The justice of God and the love of God, the light of God and the love of God came together in a way that fulfilled both his righteous nature and his loving nature. It came together on the cross. But Bildad says God doesn't pervert justice. In verse 4, listen to this. This is so harsh. If thy children have sinned against him, and he have cast them away for their transgression. If, you would, if thou would seek unto him betimes and make supplication of the Almighty. We'll come back and finish that in a minute. But notice what he's saying. God doesn't pervert judgment. Job, your, your children are dead because of something they did. How, how comforting would that be to come to you when you've lost a child? And you say, well, he died because he did this. Or she died because of that. Hey, it even is worse because... Eliphaz even suggested it was because of something Job did. Now listen, we know that everybody dies because of sin. Don't, don't miss that fact. Why, you know, why does some tragedy happen? Because Adam sinned. Sin is the curse of this world. We are cursed by sin and we die because of sin. And I'm not forgetting the fact that sometimes we can do things to hasten our own death. I get that. You know, if I go out and get in my car and decide to go to Birmingham and decide I want to drive a north in the southbound lane of I-20 and 59, it's probably, it's probably going to be my time to go, as they say. You know, we, we hear that a lot. Oh, it's my time to go. Well, I heard this story one time about this old preacher who had a friend who was a pilot. And uh, most people that believe that there's a set time to go don't really believe it. <laughs> and this... Uh, and this, this preacher uh, was uh, one of those that believed that there was a set time to go. And his friend asked him, he said, uh, Preacher, how about flying in, up with me in my plane today? He said, oh, no, no, sir, I'm not flying in no plane. And the, the pilot looked at him and said, Well, Preacher, don't you believe that 
you're not going to go till your time comes? He said, I sure do. But he said, I'm afraid we may get up there and your time come. <laughs> see, most people that, that say they believe that don't really believe it. Because you see, there are things we can do that, uh, that would fly in the face, that would tempt God, that would fly in his face. Now, now I, I don't mean to get off on this too much, but I just want to say that certainly from the mind of God, he knows exactly when we're going to die. But from our standpoint, we don't know that, and we shouldn't be thinking, well, I can do whatever I want to do because I'm not going to die till my time comes. Well, like that, like that preacher said, you may get out there driving northbound on the southbound lane and your time come. <laughs> but you see, here he says he's accusing Job's children of sinning, and that being the reason that they lost their lives. I want to say to you this. You re remember this. Remember this, Job is not suffering for any sin that he's committed, right? We've seen that already. Job is innocent of any sin that caused this suffering. Now understand what I'm saying. Job is still a sinner. And we're going to see that there's some pride in Job that God suffers uh, these, th these uh, things to come upon him to get rid of. But Job is not in the first instance suffering. You can't point to a sin. Oh, Job did this and therefore he's suffering, you see. There's a, but, but remember, he's still a sinner. And there's only ever one man who suffered being truly innocent. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. But now look at, look at verse 5. <laughs> Here, as, we, as Bildad is bringing up the nature of God to him, he said, If you would seek unto him betimes, and make thy supplication to the Almighty, if thou wert pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee and make the habitation of thy, uh, of thy righteousness prosperous. Notice what he's saying. If you'll just confess your sin, God will awake for you. This, this kind of thinking will lead us to believe that we have to do something to get back into God's good graces. Brother Buddy's mentioned this before, that he had a concept, even, even as a child of God. Now, we're talking about children of God. We're talking about someone who's been born again. We're not talking about doing something to get born again or doing something to get to heaven. But have you not felt the same thing I've felt before as a born-again child of God? That I'll commit some sin... And immediately I'll be just hunkered down thinking God is going to get me for that. Now, certainly God ought to get you for that. But how many times has he passed over that sin? How many times has he dealt with you in grace and mercy? It's happened to me over and over. And I've come to understand that, that it's not a one-for-one one thing. It's not tit-for-tat in God's service. It is not that God is going to... Uh, immediately he's not wielding the lightning bolt ready to just zap us every time we 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 go astray we shouldn't go astray and if we engage in habitual sins and stay going down that broad path we will end up with destruction but God is so merciful he is so gloriously uh, graceful that even in the old testament he dealt with his saints in grace and mercy you remember you remember what Jesus said he said I'm not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. He said, uh, the healthy don't need a doctor. Jesus said, the healthy are fine. It's the sick that need him. God doesn't shoo the sick away and tell them to get better on their own and then come to him. No, he says, come to me when you're sick, child of God. Be, come to me when you're a sinner. Come to me in, in, in confession, but 
Bildad here can only see the justice and the wrath of God and says, you got to get right with God, and if you'll just do these things, he'll get you back into his good graces. Verses uh, 6 and 7 and 8 here. If thou wert pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. Though thy beginning was small, yet thy latter end should greatly increase. See Bildad saying, if you'll just do these things, God will bless you. Then Bildad turns to the experience of the past. Notice in verse 8, he says, For inquire, I pray thee, of the former age, and prepare thyself to the search of their fathers. For we are but of yesterday, and know nothing, because our days are upon earth as a shadow. Shall not they teach thee, and tell thee, and utter words out of their heart? In other words, Job, you need to listen to the wisdom of the forefathers. You need to listen to the wisdom of the ancients. Look back upon history. Bildad is a traditionalist. He's looking to the past. But I want to say to you this morning that just because something is old doesn't always make it right. When God said to Jeremiah, seek the old paths, he wasn't talking about your daddy's paths or your granddaddy's paths or even your great, great, great granddaddy's paths. He was talking about going back to the word of God, the old paths that God has set down. Why do we worship like we do today? If we went back to our great-grandfathers grandfathers and great-grandfathers' day, we might be looking like some of the denominational churches of the world. But our purpose in worshiping Him in simplicity, worshiping Him with the simple truth of the gospel, is because we go back to the Word of God as far back as it goes. In Nehemiah's day, they, they decided to, have, uh, to, to keep one of, the, one of the feasts over there, the Feast of Booths. And, and they got to reading how that uh, in the Old Testament, in the Law of Moses, they were supposed to build little booths and go dwell in them for a certain number of days. And they hadn't done that since Joshua's time. If they just went back to the time of Hezekiah or even the time of David, they wouldn't have gone back far enough. That's not an old enough path. The only old path that works is the path that comes out of the Word of God. That's why we don't worship Him with pomp and circumstance. That's why we don't have some kind of complicated worship service here because that's not how they did it in the old ways, in the old paths. Bildad here is saying, go back to the old days, but... But you've got to measure the old days by the truth of the Bible. You know, I'm thankful for these older men and women in this church. I'm thankful for the gray hair. You know, that's, that's something that we're told can be an honor. In fact, Proverbs 16 and verse 31 says the hoary head, that's the, the gray hair. That means an older person is a crown of glory if, if it be found in the way of righteousness. Just because someone's old doesn't mean they're right. There, there's, you know, I've said this many times before. My grandmother used to say, there's no fool like an old fool. <laughs> and we've seen that happen, haven't we? In many cases, uh, unfortunately. Uh, I know some people like that, but I'll say this to you, beloved. If you'll be older and wiser, and that means fearing the Lord. You know, the fear of the Lord is a beginning of wisdom. Then that will be a crown of glory. Bildad says, Based on the experience of the past, God always does right. And you wouldn't be suffering if you hadn't done wrong. And then he turns to the experience of nature. Look at verse 11. And, and verses 11 through 18 
is, is what we would call a, a, a wisdom poem. It's a, in the Hebrew, it's written in a way that it's, it's, this is why Job is called, it's part of the wisdom literature. The wisdom literature is not that it's got a bunch of wise sayings in it, but it's the way it's written. It's using allegory and analogy and some types to, to teach us some truths. And verses 11 through 18 are like that. And he's saying in these verses, even nature teaches us about the justice of God and proves that your sin is the cause of your suffering, Job. Verse 11, can the rush grow up without mire? Can the flag grow without water whilst it is yet in his greenness and not cut down? It withereth before any other herb. So are the paths of all that forget God and the hypocrites hope shall perish. In other words, Job plants wouldn't wither if they got enough water. There's a cause for them withering away. Job, your life is withering away for a reason. There's a reason that you're suffering so. And then he turns to a spider's web, verse 14, whose hope shall be cut off and whose trust shall be a spider's web. He shall lean upon his house, but it shall not stand. He shall hold it fast, but it shall not endure. How many times have you ever fallen into a spider's web and it caught you and kept you from going to the ground? Now, many times a spider's web has caused me to act a fool and uh, look like I'm uh, maybe hurting myself because I walk through it and I get it and I start, you know, acting crazy. But, uh, but, but a spider's web, that's part of the insidious nature of a sp hate spider's web. We're walking through the woods and those things are attached to you and you can't get them off and you feel, you know, just constantly. And it's going to stay there the rest of the day, by the way. You know, you'll feel it all day. But you see, the point is this. A spider's web will not support you. You can't lean on it and expect it to hold you up. Job, your confidence is going to crumble. You're having this confidence that's misplaced in yourself. You're saying you didn't do anything, but you really did. Just like that spider's web, you're going to just fall to the ground. In verse 16, speaking here now of a, of a plant again, he is green before the sun, and his branch shooteth forth in his garden. His roots are wrapped about the heap and seeth the place of the stones. If he destroy him from his place, in other words, if the plant's plucked up, then it shall deny him, saying, I have not seen thee. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the earth others shall grow. In other words, a green plant plucked up from its place proves, Job, that you are not placing your confidence where you should. If you pull up a green plant, I don't care how good it looks, I don't care how lush and green it is it will die and God doesn't look look at verse 20 behold God will will not cast away a perfect man neither will he help the evildoers in other words God doesn't pluck up perfect men he doesn't uproot you he will not uproot you if you're perfect if you're doing right no verse 21 through 22 I, I, I read this and I almost get angry because there's, there's a certain preacher that I turn on television and it makes me mad to see him walk on the stage. Not because he's better looking than me, not because he's more eloquent than me, but because he's teaching untruth to God's people. He tells them, oh, you can have your best life now. The prosperity gospel. Look what Bildad says, till he fill thy mouth, talking about God, he will fill thy mouth with laughing and thy lips with rejoicing. They that hate thee shall be clothed with shame and the dwelling place of the wicked shall come to naught. Job, if you'll do right, you can have your best life now. If you'll just 
Have enough faith. God will bless you. And the proof that you don't have enough faith and the proof that you are a wicked sinner is that God's not blessing you with stuff. That's basically the prosperity gospel. That's the Joel Osteen teaching of this world. And I hate it because it misleads God's people into thinking that their, their stuff is proof of their faithfulness. And it also leads them to despair when they don't have stuff. You know, things aren't going real good for Job. And while Job's a sinner, he hadn't done anything particularly to merit this. In fact, he was living a faithful life. More faithful than anybody else in his day. The prosperity gospel fails in the face of Job's suffering. And that's what he's saying here, Job, if you'll just do this, just confess and acknowledge what a sinner you are and that you need to change your ways, you can have your best life now. That's baloney, child of God. Because we know that Job is not suffering because of some particular sin he's done. So let's look at Job's answer in the time we have left. And first of all, Job answers Bildad in chapters 9 and 10, and particularly in chapter 9, Job is envisioning an encounter with God in a courtroom setting. I like this, obviously, as a, as a lawyer and judge that uh, it kind of piques my interest because there's so many, so many statements in here that are litigation-type statements. Uh, just, just, you don't have to make a list of these, but I just want to point it out. For instance, in verse 3 here, it says, if he will contend with him. The word contend means to enter into litigation. Uh, and also in there, he talks about answering him. The word answer there, it means to respond as a witness. Over in verse 15, he references a judge. In verse 19, he says, set me a time to plead. There's a courtroom term. In verse 33, we'll come back to this, but he talks about a daysman or a mediator or an umpire. On over a little further, there's a lot of this. He go, going forward, he keeps envisioning this courtroom setting. In the 13th chapter, in the 18th verse, Job says something about ordering his cause. Or in other words, I'm going to prepare my case before God. And then he, he, he goes on to talk about uh, asking God to hear me. And that literally means to give me a legal hearing. And he talks about the adversary, which is an accuser in court. I like that. <laughs> so in chapter 9, Job's response is in a courtroom setting. And he asked two questions. The first question he asked is found in verse 2. Then Job answered and said, I know it is so of a truth, but how should man be just with God? I know you've heard a lot of preaching from that, and you're going to hear more in the future. Because that's a great statement to teach us where we stand before God. But I want you to dismiss the theory of it right now. And I want you to think about the practicality of it of who's asking this question and where he is in life. This isn't some theologian in a seminary who is dealing with the issue of justice and judgment. This is a man who is suffering in the crucible of this, this wicked assault of Satan, who is struggling. This is a man, this isn't some high, highly educated doctor of divinity. This is a man who is schooled in the hard knock lessons of life. Job is here saying, how can I be just before God? It's the question of the ages, is it not? It's a question that we all have dealt with as children of God. How is it that I can have a relationship with God when you're born again? 
and you realize that God is your God and he has done and he is you have a vital relationship. How how is it that we get to that point? How can a wicked man who is corrupted by the sin of Adam be just before God? And he goes on to 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 make some statements here about who God is and who we are. Notice in verses 3 through 10, he talks about the power of God. Verse 3, if he will contend with him, there's that legal term again. If you want to litigate with God, you want to go to to court with God? I I don't think I want to go to court with God. If he will contend with him, he cannot answer him. Talking to man, cannot answer God, one of a thousand. We can't even speak in his presence. You know, Romans 3 and 19 talks about the majesty of God and how that every mouth will be stopped before the, just, the judgment of God. I, I love Isaiah 6. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he saw his majesty fill the temple. And, you know, sometimes I'm afraid we get this idea of God as our old buddy, old pal, you know, our, our, some good old friend, good old buddy that we can pal around with. And listen, he is our friend. Praise God, he's the friend of sinners. But he's not some pal that you can dismiss and that you can come up to. You don't see Isaiah going up there into the temple and saying, Hey, old buddy, old pal, I've been looking for you for some time. Where have you been? No, he realized he was a man of unclean lips and he dwelt among a people of unclean lips. He, He hit the floor. He hit the dust like all do when they see God lifted up. See, Job is in the same position. He says, How should man be just with God? If he asks me questions, I can't answer even one of a thousand questions and by the way the irony of this is he proves it later doesn't he (laughs) he proves it later I think it's 77 questions that God asked if I'm correct on my number in there and not one of them could Job or any of his friends answer (laughs) we can't even speak in his presence look at verse 4 he is wise and hard and mighty and strength who hath hardened himself against him and hath prospered we can't even oppose him We can't come up to him and say, well, God, I just don't like what you're doing. I'm against you. I mean, my goodness, God's so merciful. You know, we do that, don't we? So many times we question God. You know what he would be just to do? You ever, I used to love those those mosquito bug lights, you know, that you hang up there that are electric. And, you know, it draws the mosquito in or the some kind of bug in it go bzz, you hear it you know I, love, I used to love to hear that we'd be outside doing it you, hear bzz, 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 you know just be constantly doing that because it's you know what it's doing it's frying those bugs god would be just every time i look at him and say why god to go bzz, you know and just fry me he would be just we can't oppose him praise god he doesn't do that to us but he would be just and right to do it I, you know i've had situations before when i was a prosecutor i'd go to court and there'd be somebody on the other side some defendant who didn't get it as we say and he'd walk up to the court and he'd look up at the judge say judge here's what we're going to do well i'm not going to tell you what judge moore would say when that would happen but it wasn't okay buddy what do you think (laughs) you see that's the way we do god is it now he says we can't oppose him we can't do anything against him In verses 5 through 10, sort of are a preview of God's questions in Job 38 
about creation. He said, which removeth the mountains and they know not, which overturneth them in his anger, which shaketh the earth out of her place and the pillars tremble. Look at what God's doing. Which commandeth the sun and it riseth not. Did you know God could say, you know, we always think about the sun rising and setting and say that, oh, wow, that's, uh, uh, that's just automatic. We can count on one thing. We can count on the sun rising in the morning. If God says don't rise, we can't count on it. We can't stop it, but God can. He sealeth up the stars, which alone spreadeth out the heavens, and treadeth upon the waves of the sea, which maketh Arcturus, Orion, and Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. He's saying here, it's really a preview of the questions he's going to ask over in Job 38. He's going to say, where were you when I did this? And Job's not going to be able to answer. Well, Job gets it here. He's kind of seeing you know, that's right. God's greater than me. I can't oppose him. In verse 10, I love, speaking of God, which doeth great things past finding out, yea, and wonders without number. Now, Job gets a little messed up, a little mixed up on God, what God's doing and on even the nature of God later on, but he's got him right right here. He's got him right right here. Sometimes we do the same thing. We get mixed up. But if we can remember, God does great things past finding out. Job, this is the answer to your question right here. If you could just rest on this, you're not going to have any problems. Because you're going to say, wait a minute. I don't know what's happening to me, but I know my God is great and doeth great things past finding out. I can trust him. You see, Bildad and Eliphaz and Zophar later on, they're not trusting God. They're trying to shame Job with God. They're not encouraging him to lean upon him. They're encouraging him to be afraid of him. Yea, and wonders without number. How should man be just with God? Look at the power of God. I, we can't do anything with God. And now look at the position of God. Verse 11, Lo, he goeth by me, and I see him not. He passeth on also, but I perceive him not. People think they've got a tail hold and a downhill pull on God. But God is greater than that. God is, is, is invisible. He passes by. You don't know what he's doing. You don't know where he's going. It's one of the problems I have with preachers that say, do A, B, C, and D, and you'll get born again. In other words, just do this, and you've got to hold on God. We're told in John, the third chapter, that the Holy Spirit's like the wind. It blows where it wants to. You don't know where it came from. You don't know where it's going next. God is God, you see. Verse 12. Behold, he taketh away who can hinder him, who will say unto him, What doest thou? If God will not withdraw his anger, the proud helpers do stoop unto him. I just want to point out one thing, and again, here, you understand, I hope, I'm not correcting or improving on the translation because I believe it's exactly right. But it is interesting to, to do a little word study on that term, proud helpers. That term proud helpers is the Hebrew word Rahab or Rahav. And it's a word that often refers to Egypt. Egypt is called Rahab in many places in the word of God, which is a type of the world. And in Job's day, it was also a reference to a mythical sea monster, a, a great storm uh, that they would call that. Some of the pagans would call that Rahab on the ocean there. And notice, I don't know if Job's reference is to that. And I know he doesn't believe in that. I'm not saying, Job, that that's a correct interpretation of what the storm was. But it would have made sense to the people in his day. They would have said, oh, even the storm, even Rahab, the proud helpers do stoop under God how should man be just with God and the second question he asks comes up in verse 14 
How could I answer God if he showed up? How much less shall I answer him and choose out my words to reason with him? In other words, if he came on the scene, what would I say? If he showed up, what would I do? Uh, notice he says, he says even, if I can, if, even if God showed up, I couldn't speak. Whom though I were righteous, yet would I not answer, but I would make supplication to my judge. If I had called and he had answered me, yet would I not believe he had hearkened unto my voice. I wouldn't even believe he was here if he did show up little caveat, a little side note, a little footnote. When God did show up, he knew it. I want to say to you, beloved, when God shows up in your life, you're going to know it. <laughs> you know it. When he did show up, he knew it. For he breaketh me with a tempest. Now, here's where Job is getting off again. God, you're doing all this to me. When God's not doing all this to him. But he says, he breaketh me with a tempest, multiplieth my wounds without cause. He won't suffer me to take a breath, filleth me with bitterness if I speak of strength. Lo, he is strong if of judgment. Who shall set me a time to plead? Even if God showed up, I couldn't speak. And even if I could speak, beginning here in verse 20, he said, even if I could speak, I would, it wouldn't change anything. If I justify myself, my own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I'm perfect, it shall prove me, prove me perverse. Though I were perfect, yet I would not know my soul. I would despise my life. In other words, I know I'm a sinner. And in verses 22 through 23, he's still buying into the idea that God is arbitrary and that God is doing this to him. He says, this is one thing. Therefore, he say, I said it. He destroyeth the perfect with the wicked. He goes down in verse 24 and he says, the earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covereth the faces of the judges. If not, where and who is he? In other words, God, where are you? Where are you? You remember the disciples, carest thou not that we perish? Lord, you don't care. Lord, where are you? How many times have I said things like this? And down in verses 25 through 31, and we won't read them all, but notice he's saying, if I put on a happy face, it wouldn't do any good. It wouldn't do any good. Verse 25, my days are swifter than a post. They flee away. He said in verse 27, if I say I will forget my complaint, if I just suck it up and become stoic and deal with it and smile in the face of adversity, it wouldn't do me any good. If I, wash my, if I wash myself with snow, verse 30, with snow water and make my hands clean, yet thou shalt plunge me in the ditch. My own clothes shall abhor me. It's not going to change anything. It's not going to change anything for me to just become a stoic. Stoicism didn't work for Job. And I'm going to tell you, beloved, it won't work for us. And look at verse 32 now. If only I had a mediator, he says. If only I had a mediator. For he is not a man as I am that I should answer him. And we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. Job says something here that is the cry of every heartbroken child of God that I've ever known, including myself. If only I had a mediator, if there was just some man who could intercede. I hope, you're, I hope that rings a bell with you. Lord willing, we're going to come back and finish this thought in a minute, but, but keep that thought in your mind. If only there just was a mediator between me and God. In, verse, in chapter 10, Job begins to pour out his anguish before God. We're not going to read the whole thing, but you read it. 
It's very similar to some chapters we read, chapters 4 and chapter 6 and 7, when Job is spoken before. Verses 1 through 3, Job is saying, Lord, I just wish I could die. He said, my soul is weary of my life. I will leave my complaint upon myself. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. That phrase, bitterness of soul, occurs five times in the Word of God as a phrase. And every time it's spoken by someone who is in desperate straits. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, it was spoken by Hannah, the barren uh, wife there who became the mother of Samuel, crying out to God. She was in bitterness of soul. Uh, then twi- three times in the book of Job, it appears from Job speaking it. And in Isaiah chapter 38, Hezekiah says it when he thought he was dying. This is something deeper than just being a little sad or a little down and out. This is bitterness of soul. And in the bitterness of his soul, he says, God, I want to die. Now, that's wrong thinking. You know it is, and I know it is. But I've been there. I'm sure you've been there or close to there where you wished you could die. Isaiah got, or Elijah got there. All of us have the potential to get there. And when we're there, we don't need somebody coming in saying, it's your fault. It's your problem. You're the reason for this. Listen, I know how faulty, how faulty I am. Nobody knows how big a sinner I am more than I do. You know how big a sinner you are. These men are coming in, and this man is in bitterness of soul, and they're not comforting him. He speaks to God beginning here in verse 2. Verses 4 through 6, he's saying, God, you can't identify with me because you're not a man. In verse 7, Some pride is slipping in. He says, you know I'm not wicked. (laughs) Now he's correct in that his wickedness is not the direct cause of his suffering. The devil is. But some pride here is slipping in. Verses 8 through 13, he basically says, God, you made me. Why are you destroying me now? Why are you killing me, Lord? In verses 14 through 17, he says, I acknowledge that I am a sinner. But you already know that. In verse 15, he says, I am full of confusion. You ever been there? I've been there where I was so full of confusion. Lord, what's going on? What is going on? Verses 18 through 22, he says, Lord, why did you let me be born? See, what Job is doing here in this chapter in particular, he surveyed his situation and he could see no good reason for it all. He's looking at his life and he's saying, God, what a waste. What a waste my life is. What a waste of your good hard work it is to make me and now let me be where I am. Why this waste? You know, that's the same question that the disciples and those gathered around asked when Mary came in uh, in her humble little way and brought that alabaster box of ointment and broke it and, and, and wiped the feet of Jesus with her tears and, with the, and anointed him with that, that ointment. They said, why this waste? It could have been used in such a greater way. Job is here. He said, why this waste? How many times have we done the same thing? Some baby dies, a tragic accident, uh, uh, some kind of problem in a family, some issue in our lives. We say, Lord, it just doesn't, it seems pointless. Why? This waste, it seems so vain. It seems so tragic. Let me leave you with this thought this morning. I don't know if it'll help you, but I believe it will because it sure helps me. God knew what he was doing in Job's day. He knew what he was doing in Christ's day. 
He knows what he's doing in our day. The ointment of Mary dried up many, many years ago. But the story of her faithfulness has endured. In fact, Jesus said, wherever they preach this gospel, what she's done for me will be preached, and it has been, has it not? Job's suffering ceased thousands of years ago, but his story continues to this very day. We're still encouraged by the sufferings of Job. James 5 and 11, as we've read many times already in this series, said, you've heard of the patience of Job. There's an there's a encouragement to the sufferings of Job and the patience of his endurance there. There's, a, there's an encouragement there that God did not in, abandon him. And sometimes it's important that we suffer patiently in order, if nothing else, to inspire other people. Then finally this morning, Jesus said in John 5, 39, I believe it is, he said, search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. But what does he say? They are they that testify of me. In this oldest book of the scriptures, this oldest book of the Bible, they testify of the Lord Jesus Christ. What did we read in Job 9, 32? He is not a man as I am that I should answer him and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. Notice what Job says. If there just were a mediator, here's what I would do. Let him take his rod away from me and let not his fear terrify me. Then would I speak and not fear him but it is not so with me. You see, without a mediator, Job was hopeless. But with a mediator, if there just were a mediator, then I would be able to speak to God. I would be able to talk with God. I would not fear God. And of course, we know that there was such a man. If there just were a man, there was a man. Isaiah 53, 12 tells us he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The transgressors. He was the mediator. Romans 8, 34. Oh, how precious. After telling us about the great covenant of grace where he entered into a, a purpose to save his people from their sins from the foundation of the world, he asked the question, who is he that condemneth? Oh, Bildad and Eliphaz and Zophar and even Elihu, you're condemning Job. But who can legitimately condemn a child of God? Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right right hand of God who also maketh intercession for us. And just in case you're worried about it, just in case you're not sure he can get the job done, Hebrews 7.25 tells us that he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Beloved, our God is not just willing, he's able to save us completely from everything that afflicts us. He has saved us for eternity from the penalty of sin. And in your life, child of God, the good news is he's able to deliver you from the power of sin and suffering in this life. Job didn't understand it all. He had an inkling of what was going on. He said, if I just had a mediator, Job, you got a mediator. <laughs> he's going to talk about that mediator in the 19th chapter. Oh, that my words were now written, that they were graven in lead and an iron pen in the rock forever, for I know that my Redeemer liveth. 
Beloved, this morning, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're suffering from. I know what I'm going through. I know what I'm suffering from. I know where, where my problems are. But I know my Redeemer lives. And my mediator is making intercession for me today. Job, just like Job's was in that day, even though he didn't know it. And even when you don't know it, even when you don't see it, like Job, God is there. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.